Hello everyone, it's April 17th, 2018. This week we're talking to Tess Caswell, and she's going to tell us a thing or two about life support on the ISS. It's a topic I've wanted to cover since the beginning of the show, but hey, better late than never. So here we go, and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 154 of the Open Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. How you doing, David? I'm all right. How are you doing? I flew uh, I flew a remote control aircraft this week. Did you? What, what kind? Was it a... One of those little helicopter drones? No, it is um, a flying wing that my dad and I built. So yeah, the the first flight was was very short. Apparently, my my elevons are not balanced because it just rolled to the left and went to the ground. So I'm gonna see see if I can get it to glide. I don't think I can get it to glide, but I'm gonna gonna do some glide tests before I try flying it again. So a flying wing, so it's basically just like one big giant delta wing looking thing, right? Is that kind of yep. what it looks like? Uh, not, I mean, not delta, um, because it's uh, it, it's a longer aspect ratio. So you still have to work on getting it balanced out. The weight okay. balance is right. It's the control input balance that's wrong. Let's let's actually do this show before I just. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go ahead and move on then. All right. Moving on to this week in spaceflight history. Looks like we just have two winners, huh? Yeah. Yeah. My my clue was. I realized it was a little difficult. All right, so our winners this week are Amy Parent and Ian Soddy. Uh, the clue from last week was 150 million kilometers of travel ends in a pop tire. And and here's where this clue is probably harder than it needed to be. This week in spaceflight history is the 22nd of April, 2010. It was the launch of uh, USA 212, which was the first orbital launch of x-37 otv1 is the is a specific x-37 but it, you know it's the first x-37 launch and so the clue seems to reference the landing when i was actually talking about the launch as the event so that that one's probably on me but anyway uh the x-37 uh launched on an atlas 5 out of cape canaveral uh in april and then landed at vandenberg uh, in early December. We've talked about X-37 a couple times, so I'm not going to go too much into detail, but I did want to talk about this mission um, because it's, you know, the first time that we saw this super secret but highly interesting payload fly. And so it took uh, like two weeks before it was spotted by observers. And the first person to spot it was an amateur in Toronto. And once they got the orbital parameters dialed in, they found out that the ground track repeated every four days, which means that it was overflying the same locations every four days, which tells you a lot about what was on board or what the intention of the vehicle is and that's specific earth observation uh, it's a it's got some spy elements to it they also do other things that are you know long duration space experiments but observations a, a big uh, a big priority here so usa 212 during its couple of months in orbit it made five uh orbital changes um, and all of them had repeating or almost repeating ground tracks. It actually ended up transferring into a low orbit at the very end that repeated every three days. And what's interesting is that by looking at these orbital changes, they were a actually able to calculate uh, the delta V expenditure on orbit. And it was something on the order of two to 300 uh, meters per second. And uh, I'm really interested, you know, eventually this is going to get declassified and we're going to find out exactly how much delta V it has on board. And I'm, I'm guessing it's a lot more than uh, three meters per second or 300 meters per second. I'm betting that they're trying to keep it quiet what they can do with it. 
Um, but anyway, there you go. The the first launch of OTV1 or, you know, any X37B. So next week in 1972, this is a better clue, but uh, I'm guessing we're not going to get very many people guessing this. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, next week in 1972, the clue is astronauts don't cry. They get things in their eye sometimes, though. Uh, you know, maybe sweat or maybe the sun. All right. Next week in 1972. I got no idea, as usual, but I'm sure someone out there does. So if you do, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Uh, we have some BFR updates, and this is all about tooling. So what it takes to build a BFR. And this is another one of those stories that is thanks to people doing what <laughs> is borderline corporate espionage. <laughs> at, least I've, at least I've heard it referenced as that somewhere on the SpaceX subreddit, which is, you know, not entirely untrue. <laughs> but, right. um, that and, and also SpaceX and Ascent Aerospace both released photos. But yeah, definitely this this kind of, we, we led up to this announcement with um, some, yeah, borderline corporate espionage. So, I mean, there's there's not a whole heck of a lot to talk about. We didn't talk about it last week because I was kind of waiting for, you know, some people who are smarter than us to do a little bit of analysis. But, you know, it's it's uh, worth talking about. So did you see this Tesla Roddy article? So I saw the article. So SpaceX has this big tent, right? Or mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Well, it's not a tent. It's a building just covered in plastic. Right now, uh, I've seen a couple people refer to it as the BFT, which I love. So I'm going to call it a tent just so that I can call it the BFT. Inside that BFT, is a piece of tooling, I guess um, that's mm -hmm. the correct term, which is for manufacturing large cylindrical carbon composite structures, right? I've never seen these things in action. So it looks kind of like a giant thread spool. So how do these things work? Like maybe explain to listeners how this particular thing operates, because I'm not entirely sure myself. I think you just lay uh, uh, the composite over it. Yeah, exactly. Like a, a thread spool is actually a very apt analogy. So basically manufacturing is not going to happen in this tent, right? Like you, you need better uh, uh, environmental control and you also need an oven to bake it in. But basically this whole drum is going to rotate and they're going to have um, tape, carbon fiber tape, that they're going to lay onto the, it's basically a mandrel and they'll, they'll lay it on top and the tape will overlap itself. Uh, I mean, we believe that they're using tape and not individual strands, but so far indications are that they're going to be using uh, tape. And uh, so they'll lay it down with, uh, I mean, it's, it's carbon fiber. Like, you know, it's, it's glue with fibers in it. Um, and they'll, they'll lay it down on top of this mandrel. And then the mandrel is, well, it's, it's a tool. It's, made by Ascent Aerospace, which is kind of the, the biggest news is that they've identified who, who makes it. And Ascent Aerospace um, is known for making mandrels and layup molds that are heat released. So this thing probably heats up to release the carbon fiber part Additionally, it may be tapered slightly to make it easier to pull uh, the part off. But what's interesting is that here we're talking about making a big cylindrical object. There's no, uh, so far we haven't seen any tooling for the, the end caps or the common bulkhead or any of this. Um, so 
a lot of discussion right now is happening, um, wondering how SpaceX is going to do this because they built that gigantic BFR tank way back at the initial IAC, what was that, IAC 2016, where they, they showed off this giant tank and then, you know, we got to watch them blow it up in the middle of the ocean. And that was basically two end caps joined together. Uh, in the middle. So we know that they can do it. Um, we know that they're thinking about this and actually putting some of this into practice. But the question is, how are they going to how are they going to actually assemble this uh, in the in the final product? So that's really one of the big questions. And it's really fascinating to kind of see these things slowly trickle in. You maybe answered the question that I had because I wasn't sure how you get it off of the, the giant mandrel. So you're saying that it might be tapered, but also if you heat it up, then it'll just come loose. Like I would think that there would be some kind of expansion going on maybe that might make it even more difficult. So it's important to remember that this whole thing is going to go into an oven. And so they're going to, you know, cure it on this thing and then they have to get it off. So at, at that point, I don't, Oh, Dan in the chat's correcting me. It's, it's an autoclave, not an oven. Um, <laughs> same difference, but no, no wor words are important. Uh, but yeah, the, I mean, getting it off is, is no mean feat, right? Like this is something that you really have to think about. And this is, I think this is going to be the largest carbon fiber structure that we've ever built as a species, right? Cause there are some Boeing spacecrafts that are much smaller than this. This is nine diameter or nine meter diameter and then i think the the boeing uh airframe that's built is like six meter diameter or four meter diameter i mean it's just imagine if it was the full 12 well so speaking of size um people did a bunch of analysis on this tool trying to figure out how big of a tank it can produce and then um gwen shotwell did a ted talk that showed a, a new video of bfr and it's bigger than the the original mini BFR that that was released at uh, at IAC 2017. Yeah, the scaled down one. Yeah, so I I guess the terminology generally accepted is ITS is the big one and BFR is the smaller one. So uh, yeah, Sam Moore in the chat says it's probably a good idea to specify that it's longer, not not wider, and that's that's easier, right? Uh, but anyway, somebody tweeted at Elon and he replied and said, yeah, it maybe is a little longer winky face. So that's that's pretty cool that we're seeing not quite a not a return to the original size, but like we're we're seeing this project continue to move and, and get more and more powerful. So that's that's really cool. So some of the speculation as to why that might be is because maybe they were able to get uh, those Raptor engines back up to something like the 300 bar chamber pressure. So like maybe they might be able to handle larger tankage. And so it's just not known yet exactly why it might be a little bit larger. But um, yeah, it just might be that they have more to work with than they thought so they can actually increase the length of the tanks, not the diameter. So it's still just nine meters. Yeah, you can you can use a lot of the same tooling if you just stretch it a little bit. So right now, SpaceX is still saying that they're going to do BFR hops with just the spacecraft early next year is what they're aiming for, what's, what they're hoping for. And then maybe they think that they can go to orbit in 2020. And seeing all of this tooling and big old uh, tool mounts and things in the basically the parking lot of of Puerto San Pedro like it makes it makes me feel like that is a little more realistic now that I have seen them do a little bit like it makes me feel like maybe there's more of a chance but like it still seems pretty pie in the sky what do you think I mean I still think it's quite possible although so this giant mandrel um is this for the first or second stage or the first stage or the ship itself because 
Um, I thought that the ship was, it was not perfectly, well, I guess it is. I mean, it's, yeah. is it a perfect cylinder with just a delta wing on it? At the bottom, it's a cylinder. And then at the top, it, it curves up. So so this thing, that's a good question because this thing is about 15 meters, but we're guessing that, or we, <laughs> smarter people than us are looking at the size and looking at the way that they're actually going to, you know, the usable surface on it. And the idea is that it's probably just under 15 meters long. And that means that you can make first stage parts on it. So they'll probably use it for both is is my guess. I think it can be done, but um, I would say that like seeing this does not necessarily tell me anything. But um, if they're, you know, holding to that timeline we are just talking about, you know, these little hops. It's more of a test article. And so I think that that's perfectly possible. I mean, I, I don't see it being that difficult. It's going to be kind of like, you know, a gutted concept car of a mm. spaceship. So I don't think it's that big of a deal. I'm more interested to know what's going on with the Raptor engines, actually. that's Yeah. I haven't heard much about them lately. And, yeah, they were having that whole chamber pressure thing where they had to bring it down for various reasons, which had more to do with landing it because those Raptor engines were actually too powerful. And so they were having problems getting it back down, uh, believe it or not. So that's why they had to reduce the chamber pressure. But now maybe it's back up again because they have increased the size, which now that I think about it makes sense because that's one way you can get something back down to the ground, right? Is just make it heavier. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I mean, I don't know. I'm just completely speculating. So yeah, I have no idea. All right, let's uh, move on to our next uh, next topic here. Uh, Intercryogenic propulsion upper stage is back in business. I didn't know that it was out. I can't well, remember. Well, e- even, even more in business, let's say. So uh, quick overview. SLS has got uh, four versions. I think, I think they might be looking beyond that. But right now there's like four major versions to keep track of. There's block one, block one B. Uh, and block one B comes in a crew and a cargo variant. And then there's block two. So block one originally, or, or at least most recently was only planned to fly once. It's an SLS up to the upper stage. And then the upper stage is an ICPS. And they were going to do um, one mission with it just to demo, you know, like another uh, exploration test flight and say, okay, here we go. We've tested the system. And then they were going to quote unquote upgrade it to block one B, which has got the exploration upper stage, the EUS and the EUS would be human rated. And they were going to be able to go and do all sorts of really cool things. So a long time ago, back in March of 2016, in episode 47, we talked about what it would take to crew rate the ICPS. And we were both of the opinion that it was a ridiculous idea. If you're going to have the EUS come along, why would you spend all this money to crew rate the ICPS? And for reference, back then they were saying it was going to cost around $150 million. I don't know if that number has gone up or down, but you know we'll see. But anyway, you know they were kind of going to have this interim version of of sls so that they could finish building eus which was taking longer and now what they're saying is they can kind of front load their schedule and get sls flying people into deep space earlier if they just human rate the icps and move missions earlier which still kind of seems ridiculous to me um i don't know why well okay so so dan the chat says 100 
and $50 million to save even a fraction of an SLS flight still saves money due to the running cost of the program. And yes, that's true, but it still seems so silly to have an interim upper stage that you're going to use when you have the actual, the real deal coming later down the line. And using the ICPS, if they, if they kind of front load some missions onto block one, they're going to wind up not being able to do all of the things that they wanted to do. Um, they're going to be able to get to the moon, um, but you know, they're, they're not going to be able to do any of the, you know, really uh, trans lunar missions that they want to do. But the idea is that if they do this, uh, they can fly exploration mission two earlier than 2023, which sounds insane to me. Um, I think, I think that's really, really crazy. I mean, we have, you know, our opinions on SLS that, that have been frequently expressed. But I mean, like, still, it's it's kind of hard to argue with sending people to the moon before 2023. Dan says, uh, well, earlier than delayed from 2023. Yes, yes, yes. Good phrasing. But I mean, still, like, that that is kind of miraculous to think about maybe moving that forward. So all of this is coming like kind of on the heels of the new NASA budget, which is huge. And we haven't talked about it on the show really, uh, but NASA gets this huge budget boost. And I'm just wondering how long it's going to stay around. Like, I just feel like it's going to disappear and maybe spending it all on SLS is not a fantastic idea. There's already been, you know, so much money put into SLS and I think getting a budget increase for SLS, just as you said, might be a not so great idea. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how you feel about SLS on it. I mean, there's just been so many delays in. I just feel like that money could be appropriated somewhere else and put to better use because, yeah, like SLS has had so many slips that that money, I'm not going to say it's going to be squandered, but you know. So like on the one hand, like SLS is really cool because it is reusing shuttle hardware. And that's kind of something that we've dreamed about for a long time. And, and if, if SLS turned into this workhorse that was putting um, huge chunks of space stations up and like really moving and, and doing a lot of great things, I could be harder to argue with, but, and all of that comes with more money, but right now it feels like it's so underfunded that it's not worth it at all. And it's kind of hard to break out of that mindset, you know? So you're saying that it's underfunded in the sense that, I mean, yeah, it is. It's soaked up a lot of money so far, like in the sense that it's not going to become something that actually does things, you know, like it, like it's, it doesn't have the, the missions planned for it. So it doesn't have the money to go with. Yeah. Like Dan says, there, there's a little bit of, of mismanagement going on as well. And it's, you know, like we want it to be an Apollo, right? Like Apollo was this thing where all 50 states, you know, contributed something and the entire country. And it's just like, that's, that's not possible here. To be gracious, I think that's a, a lot of what's happening with the mismanagement. You have to have a very specific goal in mind and stick to it. And that's how you get things done. If not, it just becomes more of a, I don't want to say a jobs program, but kind of. Yeah. Time to do some short and sweet. What's our first one? So first, CNBC reports the results of two separate Zuma investigations. I wasn't able to find the reports themselves. Hopefully they'll come to light later. But CNBC and uh, Wall Street Journal are both saying that um, they indicate uh, that A, Zuma cost $3.5 billion dollars which was funded using some sort of low oversight method uh, that kind of sidestepped Congress just a little bit. Um, they also indicate that some 
part of Zuma's design made it more fragile than other common satellites. So Northrop Grumman designed their own payload adapter uh, specifically to absorb vibrations and provide a smoother ride. Um, it seems that that adapter did actually release Zuma, but not until after the Falcon 9 second stage had performed its deorbit burn with obvious consequences. Next up, OTV-5 has been found. So we talked about uh, the first mission in the This Week in Spaceflight History. Let's talk about the fifth one. In September of last year, an X-37B was launched aboard a Falcon 9. Uh, shortly after liftoff, amateur trackers lost sight of the vehicle. The Falcon 9 lifted off on a 43-degree path, but the splashdown for the second stage was consistent with a 60-70 to 70 degree orbit, um, which would indicate some type of out-of-plane maneuver uh, shortly after launch. An observer in Scotland spotted the vehicle back in October. However, confirmation that this was the X-37B was only made this month. Previous OTV missions were at lower inclinations, but this one was confirmed at 54.47 degrees in a roughly circular orbit of 356 kilometers in altitude. Details about the OTV-5 mission remain sparse, but at least now we know its orbit. So this is a different one. So this is the highest inclination so far at 54 degrees, but still no word on exactly what it's doing. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we just got uh, one good correction, I would say, or an interesting elaboration on uh, SpaceX payload fairings. So this is from CAP MSFC. Yeah, so last week we were talking about these two different designs that we were getting specs for, and we, we weren't sure what the deal was. My guess was that they were... One was the original, and then the second one was an upgrade that they had done. But actually, it turns out that they're going to be testing both of them uh, side by side to see what design is going to be better. So I think that's really, really interesting. So also Ben Howler chimed in. Uh, he sent an email. He said, I'm not sure why Dan thinks the fairing recovery is why there's $6 million. I thought ULAs are more like $10 million. So um, I guess that these aren't necessarily too expensive. He goes on to say that Musk said that the main driver isn't just cost, but also fairing construction as a bottleneck. So it just takes too long to manufacture them, um, which also, I guess, makes sense if indeed that's the case. I didn't know that they took a long time to make. I mean, I mean, I, again, I didn't know they were this expensive. I didn't know that they were this hard to manufacture, but this is what he's pointing out. So maybe $6 million, you know, that the whole reason why they have to recover it is not just to, you know, recoup the $6 million, but also just because it takes a lot of time and it does take space on, you know, the factory floor to make them. So maybe it's perfectly reasonable to try and recover them. Cap MSFC on our subreddit also included a nice little number here. Um, SpaceX expects 240 fairing recoveries of both halves. Uh, that's over, you know, the next six years of, of Falcon 9's life. Uh, that's nearly one and a half billion dollars in hardware recovered. So definitely. And and that's, you know, when you're beginning to think about what Starlink is going to require, you know, 25 extra flights a year or so. This is pretty big volumes. So, yeah, well, I guess when you put it that way, it makes sense. <laughs> you, you just kind of have to do the math and then you realize, oh, wow, that's a lot of money and time. All right. So we have one more thing. And uh, this... This is being recorded after our actual show because uh, I forgot it. But uh, Splashdown Bingo, we have some winners. I had a really hard time picking a location winner because um, at first the locations reported of the re-entry were pretty far apart. So we kind of waited. We, we did have a couple of different ones that kind of fell very, very, very close uh, to each other. But when I took averages, um, they actually landed between two squares. So I wanted to wait some extra time. Uh, and uh, and see if we got further data, and it doesn't look like we have. So 
The easy one is the time winner. And that's actually Detective Anya on Twitter. So congratulations. I'll be shooting you a private message. By the time you hear this, you probably already have gotten the private message. Uh, but Detective Anya chose 4-2 at midnight. Uh, and that was actually the, the closest. Then location. <laughs> so a couple of interesting things about location is we had a we had a bunch of duplicates and we also had people guessing outside of the inclination of the station. So I guess uh, this is a low effort required kind of way to enter. Uh, in the future, we'd like to have something that's a little less ambiguous. But, you know, basically people weren't paying attention to what they were doing. And so anybody who guessed outside of the inclination, obviously, you know, that's kind of a disqualification by physics. Um, and then duplicates were thrown out. Um, there were a couple of times where I had to make some corrections um, and that resulted in, in duplicates. So basically somebody went and turned off the data validation so that people were able to enter guesses without leading zeros, which which resulted in them not getting a notification that they had entered a duplicate. Um, but luckily, none of that mattered. Um, where where the spacecraft came down was inside uh, square L2 um, on our map. Nobody guessed L2, so that's that's easy. Um, or that's that's not the easy way to do it. And so the the rules stated that if it didn't come down inside of somebody's square, we would select the winner who the center of their square was closest to the splashdown location. So we have two uh, two locations that are very, very close to each other. And the horrible thing is that uh, one of them is closer to M2 and the other one is closer to L2. And when we average the two out by my best reckoning, and I, I did this multiple times, it, it was smack on the diagonal so that the average wasn't closer to either, either square. So, so we have two winners. Let's see. So the first one is Valentin Frank, a uh, friend of the show, uh, who guessed L1. And the other person is Braylon, who's uh, user Vongong23 on Reddit. Um, and Braylon also won with uh, M2. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose um, uh, a random number. My thought was that we, we would send a book to the time winner and a model to the location winner. And I actually have packed up the model. I was going to it's going to shake it for you so you could hear it. Um, it it's really nice. Uh, there'll be a photo in the show notes. But what, what I think we're going to do, I think the model is what I would rather win. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the model to one of the location winners. I'm going to choose a random number and the winner of the random number will get the model and the other person will get a book and we'll just send out three prizes. I'll get in touch with everybody. If the winner here wants to have a book instead of a model, we'll, we'll discuss and we'll, we'll see if we can... Uh, find an arrangement that's better. But the, the book is going to be a softback copy of the second edition, the newly reprinted second edition of Ignition by John Drury Clark, uh, which is actually the book that we read for our first season uh, book club, uh, which we're no longer really doing because it was really hard to read a book and talk about it with people. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not cut out for that. But anyway, uh, they, they recently, uh, I think partially because of all the interest that we drummed up, they decided to make a second printing. So we're going to go ahead and ship uh, those two books out. So Valentin Frank is higher on my list sorted alphabetically than Braylon. Um, so I'm going to give Valentin Frank low numbers and Braylon high numbers. And I'm going to go to random.org and generate a number from uh, one to a hundred. Okay. It's 14. So since that's low, lower than 50, Valentin Frank, you win the model. Um, I hope I'm not going to get accused of 
uh, favoritism here because you're always guessing uh, this week in spaceflight history. But uh, that's that's the way the random number worked out. So congratulations. Thank you, everybody, to, for playing. Um, this is something we'd like to do in the future. Uh, this wasn't a uh, the Orbital Mechanics production, but we kind of took over this one because... Uh, because uh, we could, and it, it seemed interesting, and we had enough people asking. So, anyway, thank you to everybody who played. I really look forward to doing this again in the future. It was a lot of fun. We have Tess Caswell with us, uh, who's going to explain to us a little bit about Eclis and maybe more importantly, Ethos, but really just anything having to do with life support in space, because this is something that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. So welcome to the show, Tess. Thank you. Happy to be here. Tell us just a little bit about yourself, and then we'll kind of go from there to dig into life support. So I have an undergrad in mechanical engineering from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And while I was working on my undergrad, I did an internship in what would become the Ethos Group at Johnson Space Center. So when I graduated, they hired me on full-time, and I trained to be an ethos operator for the International Space Station. Um, I was there for a few years, and then I decided to be a crazy person and go and get a PhD in geology, which I recently mm. completed in December. And now I am working on a postdoc at Columbia University, still related to geology, but this summer I plan to head back to the human spaceflight realm. So that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> all right. Um, so I guess maybe we should begin with ethos because I don't think too many people are familiar with it. Now, we all know what ECLIS is, right? Which is um, Environmental Control and Life Support Systems. But what is ethos? So ethos stands for Environmental and Thermal Operating Systems. Um, what they did is at the time that I came in at JSC, they were reorganizing the way that mission control is structured. And they were reducing the number of team members who would be on console over night shifts and weekend shifts. Um, and so they, they split the console formerly known as Thor, which was the thermal resources console. Um, and they took the internal thermal control system for the space station and they tacked it onto ECLIS and they turned us into ethos. So it's a combination of what used to be ECLIS and the water loops that uh, cool the interior of the space station, as well as some passive heaters on the skin of the vehicle. So why did they need to make that separation? I don't understand why you just couldn't keep it all under the same rubric. Um, it was to reduce the number of flight controllers. So they went from having um, several more people to only four operators working console on nights and weekends. Um, and it was a was a manpower reduction, but also uh, it was a streamlining of the training flow to bring people on to working console. And if they had combined all of Thor with all of Eclis, I think it would have just been too much for a single person to monitor. Mm. So they split it in half and they actually added the external thermal control system part of Thor onto the power system and created a console called Spartan. <laughs> If your ears aren't already ringing from all the acronyms, <laughs> I can add a few more. Yeah, we're kind of used to it. Yeah, I bet yeah, you are. I think we already interviewed somebody who worked the Spartan desk at one point, didn't we? I don't recall exactly. <laughs> so so we're trying to uh, fill out our, our ISS punch card and get one person from every desk. And so cool. at some point, it just like, unless you actually work there, like it all just kind of merges into one big space station clump in your head which i mean is it's amazing right like it's such a complex system that it's it's really cool that it's hard to keep everything straight but yeah so we're really excited to talk about eclis because i think it's one of the systems that everybody wants to know about right everybody wants to know how do we breathe in space 
but the actual workings are a little bit harder to understand than just, you know, looking at like an overview diagram with like arrows telling you where uh, different products are going. So could we start with a, a big overview of specifically the life support systems and, and, you know, thermal systems are also fantastic as well. But I think that life support system is probably harder to understand than radiators outside the space station. Sure. So ethos um, from a life support perspective was kind of a, a multi-prong effort. Um, so it consists of the systems that monitor the air quality on board the space station. So the things that keep track of the composition of the atmosphere and control it. So your oxygen supply, your nitrogen supply, how you remove CO2 from the atmosphere, things like that. And then the ventilation system that mixes all of those things. Because when you're in space, you don't have buoyancy causing air to move around, right? So a pocket of CO2 is going to sit still unless you disturb it with a fan. So the ventilation system is actually incredibly important on board the space station. And then also keeping the atmosphere clean and at a comfortable temperature. So the filters and things like air conditioners in space. So those are the basics. Um, and the other kind of complex portion of the ethos life is the regenerative life support system. So all of the things that recycle water so that we don't have to ship as much up to the space station. Um, the stuff that we like to say turns yesterday's coffee into tomorrow's fruit punch. <laughs> or in my case, it would just be coffee back into coffee. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Let's be honest. Especially when you're a flight controller, it's just coffee into more coffee. So where is most of the hardware for this? Is it is it sort of strung out through the stack? Or I know that there are some concentrations. Sure. Uh, so the stuff that controls and monitors the composition of the atmosphere in the station is concentrated into a couple of racks, some in the US lab and some in node three. Um, and then obviously the ventilation system is distributed throughout the station. And the water reclamation system is pretty much concentrated in node three. Um, there are counterpart systems in the Russian segment, but an ethos or an ECLIS, aside from understanding that they exist and how they work and keeping an eye on what they're doing, we don't operate the Russian segment of the space station. So you do pay attention to their status though, right? Absolutely. Um, one of the interesting things as an ethos was uh, the water balance, you know, where the water is going inside the space station and who is using it, and particularly condensation, right? The crews mm -hmm. are constantly moving back and forth between the US and the Russian segments of the space station, but the condensate that goes into the water processing system, you know, it's a fine balance to have enough to provide for the crew's needs. So they're actually sometimes, you know, trading concentrations back and forth or bags of condensate, or just, you know, controlling the rates that things like air conditioners are working on both sides of the station uh, to control who gets how much condensate at any given time. How often do you guys have to take action there? Oh, the water balance is an ongoing task. Um, we have a big spreadsheet, actually, that we use on console, or at least they did five years mm. ago, in which you're constantly you know, inputting how much water is going in, how much you think you're going to need, um, and, and fiddling with it and running the different processors when needed. That's something I, I hadn't considered, that you have two separate environmental systems, and obviously one can upset the other one. And if you have especially something like water condensate, then you, know, you might have have too much in one and not enough in the other or something like that. So does something similar happen with maintaining O2 levels or, you know, removal of CO2? Is that something that can be shifted from one segment to another, the Russian side? Or is that something that you don't need to worry about? It's mostly just the water. Oh, absolutely. There's a trade-off. The water and the oxygen are linked because the you know, oxygen production in the U.S. segment is primarily through the oxygen generator, which electrolyzes water to create O2 and H2. So they're linked in a way. Um, but the Russians also bring up oxygen in 
progress vehicles and do oxygen you know, represses that way. So there's a lot of coordination that goes on between the NASA and Russian life support groups to make sure that we are supplying the crew with adequate oxygen in a manner that is sort of reasonable between the two countries' space programs. So we actually interface with the Russian group quite a bit to make sure that everything is balanced. So Ethos is concerned more with regulating, I guess, like the thermal loads on the structure of the station? The structure of the space station um, through heaters, right? You don't want condensation to form on the inside of the modules, um, but also the temperature of the equipment inside of the space station, you know, the, the racks that support experiments or the racks that support the life support hardware itself. Um, those all have water cooling loops that circulate through them, as well as internal fans that cool them. So there, it's a very extensive water system that supplies many users systems and payloads included. And how much of a problem is condensation? Because I've heard, well, I guess we all know that things don't smell great on board <laughs> station. Um, and a lot of that is due to, um, well, I've heard stories of there being like mold that grow on the internal surfaces, the bulkhead, you know, that separates mm -hmm. you from space because there are such great changes in temperature. So how much of that do you have to clean up or have the astronauts clean up? Like how much maintaining of that do they have to do? Because it seems like an ongoing task, but I don't really know. And I've kind of always wondered, like all these things that can grow in that kind of environment with all the microbes that are essentially, you know, inside of a closed loop and they can't go anywhere. So how do you right. deal with that? When I was there, we were mostly being um, proactive about it. So we had you know, flight rules about what to do if you had a water bag that started leaking and how you would store it so that you wouldn't generate mold. And that's the purpose of that passive thermal control system, the heaters on the, the skin as well. So the constraints from my perspective as an ethos were on preventing those sorts of things from happening. And, and when I was there, I don't recall an, a time where we had to have the crew go in and clean out mold, but um, it's possible that that's happened since I left. That might not be true. I, I seem to recall that, but I mean, I don't know. Ben, do you remember hearing anything like that? So it's actually funny because I, I got into a conversation uh, on Reddit of course, where else um, about this, where somebody was saying that uh, that ISS uh, had a limited lifespan in part due to the fact that there was mold growing inside the insulation. And I was like, could you point me at a at a reference for that? Because uh, the only insulation I know of is outside the pressure vessel. And and but yeah, so I did a little bit of looking into it. And yeah, there was actually a study where they um, were actually sampling the walls of the space station to mm -hmm. look for microbes. And I was actually going to ask you, Tess, what kind of airflow happens behind the racks, right? Because we think of the walls mm -hmm. of the space station as being the front of the racks, but there's so much behind that um, now that station's up and running, is there airflow back there? Do we have to worry about microbes growing back there? What, what's going on? Well, so there isn't a system dedicated to airflow behind the racks, like outside of their structure where they meet the skin, as far as I'm aware. Um, but there are fans inside of mm. many of the racks that are expected to you know, create a lot of heat or, or need it. So there is some effort made to produce airflow within the racks. Yeah. Um, but then I think that these heaters are meant to be the primary control on condensation actually on the skin behind the racks. That makes a lot of sense. I guess while we're talking about airflow, what does airflow on station look like? Are, like in my mind, you know, the, the easiest way to do this would be to have uh, intake vents, you know, at the back and output vents at the front and kind of just flow, have, you know, a river of air flowing from front to back or something like that. But I'm sure that's not how it actually works, right? It's actually pretty similar to that. You know, the air revitalization system 
um, the stuff that removes CO2 and controls the temperature, that is generally around the middle of the station, right, around node three in the lab. So the fans overall tend to push air to the front of the station, and then air will return via the open hatchways back aft on the station. Each module, so there are actually two components to this. There's the intermodule ventilation, which forces air to flow between the modules through fans next to the hatches. And then there's the ventilation system within each module that circulates within that module. It's kind of a dance to make sure you're controlling the airflow. And we would tweak it every once in a while. You could, you know, add a duct here or there. And um, in some of the pictures up there, you'll actually see like a huge orange flexible duct kind of spanning between walls. That's usually it's kind of a bypass for the ventilation system if you want to have more control over where the air goes so that you don't get little eddies or dull patches forming. I'm pleasantly surprised that it it works as easy as that, right? It seems like it would be <laughs> something you'd really have to work on. It's like, well, no, just, just set up some fans and you got 90% of the problem solved, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that we've worked on and tweaked for a long period of time, right? We had all of our experiences from smaller vehicles like the capsules and working our way up to Skylab. So I think we've learned a lot of lessons along the way and we're still learning them. I mean, that's why you sometimes see those ducts running around inside the space station um, because we're still figuring out the best way to get airflow so that the crew doesn't get a headache if they sit in one spot for a long time. Have there ever been, well, at least while you were there, were there any issues where, you know, the crew was reporting, hey, we're not getting enough airflow. Can we, you know, can we do something here? Or are you able to predict everything ahead of time? <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that we're able to predict everything ahead of time. We do have great engineers in the support room. Um, I think especially like Boeing does a lot of the engineering right for a space station. And so they build great models of airflow within the space station, but we can't capture everything. And, and we do occasionally get reports from crew members. And that's why we do things like install a duct and, and see if we can try to improve the airflow. But I don't know if you've read Scott Kelly's book, but you know we're definitely always working with the crew to try to bring down CO2 and keep it comfortable for them. He talks a lot about that in his book. We're actually, I think at some point we're going to try to get him on the show to talk about his book, mm. but no, I have not. I have not read his book yet. I don't know about David. No, too many books to read. I swear. Now, of course, we know that water can be recycled, but the air—how much of that do you use up in a given span of time? Because I imagine that once you metabolize the O2 and then you have CO2, that is just a waste product that is not recycled from that point, right? So you just have to get rid of that, and then you have to bring in more oxygen. Or I suppose you can—you know—you could turn the water into more O2, but then you right. would have less water. So how is that managed? Yeah. So. Actually, we do recycle some of the CO2. Um, there's this really cool box called Sabatier, which oh, takes okay. CO2 and the hydrogen byproduct from the oxygen generator and makes more water. And then it, it creates a small amount of methane as a byproduct. So it's not a perfectly closed system, um, but we do actually recycle uh, some of the CO2 back into water and then more oxygen. We do get oxygen delivery from progress vehicles as well. Um, so it's, like I said, it's not a completely closed loop, but, you know, we don't have to resupply with oxygen that often. I know the Sabatier reaction, but I don't. Uh, so you're taking CO2 and combining that with the hydrogen from the water. Do I have that? That's or no, correct. the Okay, yes. And yeah. then, because I'm just trying to get an idea in my head of what percentage. So how much of the O2 on board would you say is actually recycled? Oh, that's... 
I don't have a good sense for that. I would say the majority of it, but in terms of an actual percentage, I'm not sure. Yeah, because now that you mention that, it totally makes sense because I don't think that they could bring up enough O2. You're constantly breathing. I don't know how much a human being breathes in you know a day, but it's got to be way more than they bring up on a whatever two month basis or however often mm-hmm. the re, you know like the resupplies happen. So okay, that makes sense. So how much water is added to the cycle? About eighty percent of the water is reclaimed, um, and then mm. that that balance has to be made up. And that that may have changed um, as they've you know improved the process since I was there, but I think it's around eighty percent. The remainder is brought up again in progress vehicles when it's needed. So the the progress can bring up. Um, I think around like a thousand kilograms of water or something like that. I might be misremembering that and probably check me on that, but um, it can bring up quite a bit of water when needed as well. And so the 20%, let's say, that is lost, where does that go? Yeah, I think it goes into, you get that little bit of methane that comes out of Sabatier. Um, We don't fully recover all of the water out of urine when we process it. And and that's probably the main source of loss is that, you know, we, we don't, get the brine completely free of water during that processing. How much can you tell us about how that water is actually recovered? Like, and I, cause I don't, I guess we don't want to go into too much detail, but how do you recover water from urine or at least how do you do it on board station? <laughs> how much do you actually want to know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, you know, basically it's distillation. So there's a little drum that the, the urine goes into um, and it spins so that the liquid and the brine, you know, goes to the walls. The water is vaporized from that brine, and the water vapor is collected at the center of the drum um, and drawn away into a purifier. Is it vaporized by heat? If I recall correctly, it's actually t- it's pressure. So you basically just reduce the pressure, and then that causes mm-hmm. it to boil. Okay. If I recall correctly, I sh- I should probably double check that <laughs> before you publish this online. But if I recall correctly, that's that's what it is. Um, you bring down the pressure and you vaporize the water out of the brine. And then um, the brine gets sucked away into another tank and the water vapor goes into a tank where it's condensed. Um, and actually when it comes out of, of that system, that's the urine processor assembly, it's actually pretty darn clean. I heard when I was working there that at that point, it's cleaner than what comes out of most drinking fountains actually. But after that, we run it through the water processor assembly, which sends it through, you know, filtration beds and things like that to make it even cleaner before it gets to the crew. Yeah. I mean, if you're taking one drink, it's not that big of a deal, but if you're living off of it, yeah, you want that really super clean. Is water for science experiments also pulled out of the urine recycler or is that even cleaner than potable water? Um, Sometimes they, they do take water from the potable water dispenser that the crew uses for their food um, and, and they'll use it for experiments as well. It's possible that other experiments would require maybe like a deionized or distilled water supply, um, in which case they would probably send up water of whatever quality they needed for their experiment with the experiment. Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like to have a DI water plant in space. Like that's Yeah, I mean... Seems like limited returns. And if you're pulling it out of the potable water supply, if I recall correctly, there are additives for taste for the crew because um, completely pure water doesn't actually taste that good. So the stuff that the yeah, crew it's, pulls it's out, really gross. yeah. So the stuff that the crew pulls out has you know minerals added for taste. Yeah, Dan in the chat just asked that. Oh, I'd be really interested to learn how uh, how those minerals are added back in. Like like I'm guessing that a brine is sent up and you, they just dribble dribble some 
very minerally water into the potable. I don't yeah, know. I, I honestly, I can't remember anymore, but I think it's, you know, one of the boxes yeah. along the way, maybe part of the potable water yeah. dispenser, which actually the water dispenser itself was not ethos hardware. The dispenser oh. itself, I, I believe it belongs to Oso, the operations support officer, or maybe even BME. So, but, but the, the water tank is yours yes. though. Yeah. It's interesting because ethos huh. doesn't own the toilet either. Uh, the toilet is owned by Oso, uh, but you know we can see when someone uses it because <laughs> we have tank quantity measurements. I mean, it, it makes sense, but that's really interesting. Okay, so I found a paper that talks about the urine processor, and it is low pressure in the okay. centrifuge. So you're good. woo! I haven't forgotten everything. <laughs> I mean, it's been six uh, years since I was an ethos by now, so I'm glad that I didn't purge it all with geology knowledge. Not that that wouldn't be useful if there are any geologists listening. Just going back to how you regulate heat upon the surface of the station, what types of differences do you have? Say, I'm just assuming that you have one side that faces the sun and one side that doesn't. Exactly what is the difference in temperature? Because I know that it's probably not it's probably not as extreme as I think it is, but then again, it very well might be, but I just don't really know. And on the skin of the vehicle, I don't remember the precise temperature set points. I think that the, they were around... 15 to 20 degrees Celsius for the heaters. The interesting thing is that the heaters themselves are, they're all, you know, on thermostats basically. So they're all automated. And really we, de we determined whether they were on or off and we let them do their thing. Occasionally, if say the solar arrays were going to be locked in a certain position and therefore power was going to be restricted, we would turn off sets of heaters on different modules. Um, in which case we would have a thermal clock imposed by engineering as to how mm -hmm. long you could let the module cool off before it got so cold that you start worrying about more condensation forming on the module. And usually those were on the order of hours that you could let it just sit. So we tried to keep them warm enough that even if one fails, you know, you're not instantly going to start condensing on the skin. So they stayed relatively warm, you know, 15 to 20 Celsius. I guess this has to do with the station's orientation. And also I know that there's, you know, like beta angles and so forth. But um, how long would, would any given part of the station be, say, in shadow and how long in sunlight? And how much of a temperature change could that cause if you weren't regulating it? Yeah, if you weren't regulating it, I think it then becomes very similar to the temperature extremes that astronauts experience when they're out on EVA. So, you know, I, I think that's mm. something like positive 250 to negative 250 Celsius, right? So the temperature mm. changes could be very extreme. The equipment inside the vehicle generates quite a bit of heat. So the skin of the vehicle might not actually get that cold. Actually, if you lose the water cooling or the external ammonia cooling loops for the station, um, you can start to overheat the hardware in, inside quite rapidly. So getting rid of heat actually becomes more of an issue than keeping everything warm enough. So the external skin, would you say that that could actually reach something like negative 250 on one side and then like positive 250 on the other, but that would not happen on the inside of the station because of all the internal heat being generated? Because I'm just trying to get an idea of how much the water system has to work in order to keep things at the right temperature. Right. Yeah, I think that that's fair to say that, you know, that the very most outer skin could probably get super cold. This is kind of getting into the realm of things that the engineering personnel would probably know much better than I would. But yeah, I mean, there's several layers, right, of like MMOD shielding and things like that on the outside of the station that are going to insulate it a little bit from those extremes. Um, and as you said, things like beta angle are going to influence how long you're in sunlight versus shadow. So yeah, I think that the inside of the station would be buffered somewhat from those 
really major changes in temperature. And thermal inertia is obviously yep. a factor there. But it, it's really funny because like I'm, I'm thinking about the skin of the space station changing temperature or, you know, not mm-hmm. ideally. But like the fact that the astronauts are entirely warmed and cooled by the air and there's no convection to speak of really really trips you out when you think oh and that's why the ventilation system is so important because not only does it mix the air but it flows it past the air conditioners in the various modules um how how do those air conditioners sorry to to jump back and forth here but how, how do those air conditioners work are they just like refrigerative air conditioners like we have here on Earth? Uh, actually, they use the water cooling loops. So there's a, a low temperature loop that's you know kept below oh. the dew point, basically, and it flows through these cabin air exchangers. And um, so then you can condense right on the little heat exchangers. And then there's basically a slurp bar that sucks it off to the condensate tank. Oh, slurp bar. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the air flows past these heat exchangers, goes out into the cabin. And the condensation that forms on the air conditioner gets sucked away to be recycled. Right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Obviously, that's that's all one yep, one yep. process. Okay. So, right, because for some reason I was thinking about having individual air conditioners controlling temperature all through the station, but that doesn't make any sense because where are you going to put the heat once you pull it yeah, out? Yeah, so there, there are, like in the U.S. lab, they're called CCAAs, which I believe is Common Cabin Air Assembly, if I remember correctly. And there are two of them in the U.S. lab. Usually only one is running um, and the other one will be sitting there drying out. So it kind of goes back to that microbial growth thing. You, you rotate back and forth on them so that you can dry them mm. out. And, and that only mm. controls the temperature of the air essentially in the U.S. lab, say. So each module has its own equivalent of a CCAA. And, mm. and therefore, you can control the temperature of various modules differently. And that the crew doesn't actually do that usually. They, At least when I was there, they would call down and ask us to tweak the temperature in a given module. And there's essentially a bypass vent on those CCAAs and you can control how much goes through the heat exchanger versus how much of just the cabin air is recirculated back through to control the temperature in the module. The temperature of the air is maintained by running it through those water loops. So how do you cool the water again? I'm imagining that this has to do with Actually, I'm not sure now that I think about it. Maybe I missed it, but uh, how is the water cooled then? Yeah, so the the water loops are cooled through heat exchangers with the external thermal control system. So the big radiators on the outside of the station, yeah, they have ammonia loops that are at much lower temperature, and the water loops interface with those through a heat exchanger on the outside of the vehicle. And I guess that has to be the only way, because otherwise, like Ben said, how do you get the heat outside of the station? Because it does have to be put outside of it. You can't like (laughs) run an air conditioner inside the station because that heat has to go somewhere. So yeah, you have to interface with the outside. Okay. Yep. And it has to be radiated, right? Because you don't have conduction and convection in the space environment. So that's why we have those enormous radiators out on the trusses. And those radiators are all ammonia. Are there any water radiators on station? All the external ones are ammonia. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to remember how this, how it works. You've got basically water cooling people and equipment and then transferring that heat to the ammonia and the ammonia rejects it out to space. Precisely. And I'm trying to remember if there's anything that's connected directly to the ammonia system, like maybe the, I don't know. Yeah, so inside of the vehicle, everything's connected to the water loops, as far as I know. The water loops go through heat exchangers to the ammonia system, and those are actually considered, there's a huge amount of engineering to make sure this doesn't happen, but that's one of the potential 
emergency generating failure points in the space station, that ammonia is at very high pressure. And so if those heat exchangers were to rupture, that ammonia could actually enter the water loops of the space station and create a toxic atmosphere inside. So actually as an ethos, we were responsible for monitoring the pressure in the water loops to you know, watch for that potentially happening. And that's never happened, right? Correct. That would be catastrophic. A few years ago, there was a false ammonia leak that probably, you know, gave everyone in the MCC a heart attack um, <laughs> <laughs> because it, it would be one of the potentially, you know, worst things that could happen to the space station, which is why a huge amount of engineering has gone into making sure that the probability of it happening is extremely small. But it's NASA, so we train, train, train to make sure that if it does, we'll be ready and the crew will be safe. I think that there was an ammonia, I mean, there have been at least one, if not several ammonia leaks that had just vented into space, but you're talking about something that would get into the water. Exactly. Um, and so when the crews are out on EVA, I mean, you guys talked to Scott Ray a while back and he would know all, all these procedures much better than I, but you know, when they're on EVA, they're very, very conscious of potential ammonia leaks and whether it would get onto the suits and then get it back into the vehicle. So they, they worry about that a lot when the crews are working with the ammonia system. Yeah, I think he actually mentioned that specifically. The bake-out procedure. Yeah. So the ammonia, there is no phase change, right? You just essentially just let it radiate heat out into space? Right. So the idea, so this is Spartan's purview, right? The ammonia loops outside of the station are the external thermal control system. And therefore, Spartan is responsible for them. But my understanding is that they remain liquid. Uh, there have been times, I believe, where it's gotten so cold that they may have frozen a bit out there, like in the far ends of the radiators in shadow. I think they've also at times worried that it might get so warm that you might get a little bit of vaporization, but those are contingency situations. Like it's designed to stay liquid. That must be some very important property of ammonia, and that is why they chose it, because it's hard for me to understand how you could not have a phase change, but you could still remove heat, because I mean, that's how air conditioners work on Earth, is that, you know, you... Right, yeah. right. So I think this is entirely, you know, transport of the heat via liquid ammonia, and the high-pressure ammonia is chosen because it remains liquid at you know, space temperatures. So you can get good thermal transfer without having to worry about a phase change in the system. So you don't need compressors or anything like that. You just pump it, which any Spartan that just heard that would probably die a little bit. But I was like, eh, you just pump it. It's fine. <laughs> it's that simple. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, Spartan. Okay. So, uh, so speaking of uh, ammonia leaks on the outside of the station, you guys also dump uh, matter overboard occasionally, right? I mean, not very much. We try not to. Um, if, okay. if you're talking about like trash disposal or yeah, I thought there were there was gas uh, gas venting that happened occasionally. There's a very small amount of methane that gets vented from Sabatier. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. The methane gets vented, but other than that, we try not to vent because. You know, we want to keep all of our yeah. air to ourselves. Okay. For some reason, I thought that sometimes like CO2 was dumped overboard instead of being split. Yeah. It used to be that CO2 was dumped, but with the addition of Sabatier, the idea is that the CO2 is no longer dumped unless Sabatier is for some reason not functioning, in which case you go back to venting the CO2 overboard. Sure. So the in the Russian segment, I don't know if this is something that they do. I know that they have on board Mir in the past. And I think that this is only a contingency thing, but do they 
still light those little O2 candles, you know what I mean? That kind of like percolate mm. oxygen and, and <laughs> because that would really cause a problem it, or at least I would think it would because you have this whole chemistry going on here. Right. So uh, they do keep those up there in case of emergency, you know, worst case scenario, you lost OGA and you've lost oxygen from the progress, you know, or electron, which is the unit in the Russian segment. Um, so they're kind of worst case scenario oxygen generation but as far as i know they have never oh i take that back i think there was one that was expiring when i was in ethos and they actually burned it but they're not huh. intended to ever be used because they're they're entirely for contingency um the same goes for lithium hydroxide canisters like we're used on the shuttle um, they also have those for co2 removal on iss in case of contingency I didn't even know about that. Yeah, in case Sabatier goes and takes a nap. Yeah. Okay. Or Cedra um, is the CO2 removal system. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. You're right. Yeah, and, and that's done by uh, by freezing it out, right? Um, it actually. So Cedra uses a material called zeolite, um, and it adsorbs CO2 from air that is flow that flows over it, um, and then that bed is isolated and warmed up, and the CO2 desorbs and gets flowed into Sabatier. Okay, so what's the what's the zeolite um, module called? So in CDRA, which is CDRA, um, which is the Oh, CDRA. Yeah, no the idea. carbon dioxide removal assembly, which is the the unit specifically that Scott Kelly remarks on numerous times during his book. So actually as an ethos, I just I felt bad because obviously he was experiencing high CO2 and he was uncomfortable, but the number of times that he complained about Cedra in his book was very similar to the amount that flight controllers probably complain about it because it's it's kind <laughs> of a beast. I mean, it's a complicated piece of machinery in that you have two different zeolite beds and you have one fan and then you have a whole host of valves that move the airflow back and forth between the beds and also, you know, direct the CO2 that's desorbed from the beds out into Sabatier or space and a whole suite of heaters that are designed to raise the zeolite beds to the right temperature to release the CO2. And what we found was that the zeolite degrades a little bit, it gets stuck in the valves um, and starts to create some pretty serious maintenance issues for the station. Um, so every once in a while, you'll see that the crew has to pull Cedra out of the rack and they'll take it and have to work on some component over another. Um, it's probably one of the things that we need to improve upon in order to have a life support system that's reliable for a transit out to Mars, sure. say. So is the zeolite like little pebbles or like what does that actually look like? If it can get stuck in a valve, what does it look right. like? Right. So I, I think it is kind of um, pellets compacted into a bed. But what I believe happened was because it gets thermal cycled a lot that it just it kind of it degrades and just little flecks of it come off and get caught in the airstream and then get drawn through the rest of the machine because uh, I think it's about 90 minutes for the cycle. So, you know, every hour and a half or so, these beds are getting warmed up to like 200 Celsius and then cooled off and then warmed and cooled. Um, and so the zeolite over, you know, the lifetime of the station has gone through millions of thermal cycles. One thing that I didn't mention earlier when we were going through the description of ethos in general was that the ethos is also responsible for emergency response on board the space station. Um, so if there's a fire, if there's a rapid depressurization, or if there's a toxic release inside the station, um, the ethos is responsible for guiding the team through the procedures to keep the crew in the vehicle safe. Obviously, the crew is trained so that they can safe themselves whether or not mission control is in the loop. So oftentimes, the ethos's job is to keep tabs on what the crew is actually doing um, and mm. keep the rest of the mission control team 
in sync with what's happening on orbit, but you kind of take the helm as an ethos, still subservient to the flight director, obviously, um, <laughs> to guide the team through an emergency if one happens on the space station. So I don't know if you're interested in talking about that, but it's kind of an exciting element of an ethos's on console life. So in the event of, say, a fire, which is, I think, about the worst thing that could happen, I'm not sure either that or depressurization, uh, they kind of go hand <laughs> in hand, what would be the steps that would be taken? Yeah, so the crew, they have this the saying is, warn, gather, work. So the warn is to hit an alarm if one hasn't already sounded on the space station, um, then gather in a safe haven, which is usually uh, the service module um, in the Russian segment, and then they go to the appropriate procedure and they work it. So whether you have a fire or a rapid depress, they're probably going to gather in the service module and decide where to go from there. For a fire, it, it becomes kind of a task of locating it. You'll try to use obviously which alarms went off, but you know, did someone see smoke or is there equipment that's malfunctioning to try to isolate it? Because especially, well, anywhere in the space station, there are so many potential sources that it could be a real challenge to find an actual source of a fire. In a depress, they'll start closing hatches in series to try to figure out which module is losing pressure. So it becomes a game of following them. Well, a game. I wouldn't necessarily call it a game. Um, but it, it becomes a, a systematic approach to closing a hatch, looking at what the pressure does on your side of the hatch, and then opening or closing another one, you know, further back in the vehicle. So you start with the big picture, you know, the node one aft hatch. Is it on the Russian side or the U.S. side? And you go from there. I know that there's never been any big depressurization events, but have you ever had any kinds of readings that you thought that something might be leaking and then you had to go through those procedures? We've never had to run the emergency procedures on orbit. Like I said, there was the one time where there was a false ammonia leak. I mean, actually, an ammonia leak is probably the worst thing that could happen because it could happen really, really fast and it becomes toxic to get to toxic concentrations in minutes. Um, so the crew is trained that if they see a toxic atmosphere alarm that would indicate potential ammonia release, they get to the Russian segment as fast as possible and they close the node one aft hatch because the ammonia system doesn't go into the Russian segment. So that's their safe haven. So that's the one that they're really trained to just like drop everything, get to safety. And so when they had the false ammonia release a couple of years ago, you know, they may have you know run the procedures at that time. And there have been a time or two where you had, you know, like a false fire alarm or a false smoke alarm. And the crew will take atmosphere readings in the modules where the alarms went off to make sure there are no combustion products. But otherwise, we have I don't think we've ever had an actual fire event on board the station. I was just wondering if maybe there were, that there was like a small one, because sometimes, you know, you might get some, you just might get some readings that might indicate that there's a small leak. Um, but I'm think, I I might be thinking yeah. of Mir instead, because I think that that did happen. Well, I know that it happened on Mir. Um, in fact, no in fact they, they had some big ones. But I was just wondering if there were some small leaks that maybe you had to, you know, like suss out and find out if indeed. Yeah, that was what was happening. There was one small leak, and I, I believe it was the lab window. Um, when when the lab was first brought up, we noticed over months that we were slowly losing nitrogen, which is the weird one, right? Like oxygen, you would expect to vary regularly with crew metabolic rates, but nitrogen should remain pretty much constant throughout the life of the station. So when you're seeing a very slow nitrogen leak over time, you know that you're probably losing air somewhere. Um, and, they, and they isolated it to the lab window. So that's a known really slow leak on the space station that had to be sussed out. I don't know if any have developed subsequently. That makes sense that you would have to track nitrogen because it does not change. Because if it's a very slow leak, then I guess tracking the O2 would not help at all. Right. There's too much noise in the signal. Yeah. So the, the lab window is, is you know, kind of quote unquote recessed, but it's not like... 
it's not like there's a door you can close and monitor pressure changes. Do you know how that leak was detected? You know, I wasn't there yet when they found the leak. I would imagine that you would maybe isolate the lab overnight and watch the pressure in the lab because there are hatches between all the modules. So you could you could isolate the lab for, say, 12 hours while the crew's asleep or something like that. I love that window because um, Don Pettit built his barn door camera tracker <laughs> and installed it in that window. It was their favorite until the cupola flew up there. Yeah, darn, stealing all the, stealing the eyes and the minds of the humans on board. They just love the big windows. Oh man, yeah. How could they put a bay window in space, man? <laughs> so has there been any leaks detected from, from the cupola? Just because I know that it does have that weird little gasket. Multiple gaskets, one for each window. Mm -hmm. I would guess that all of the modules probably somewhere have tiny, tiny, tiny leaks uh, because every once in a while you do have to do a nitrogen repress, uh, but very, very infrequently. But we would do, we would have these meetings where we would pull up months and months worth of data and we would look for trends and you could see small differences mm. when, you know, different modules were delivered and things like that. I wonder if humans will ever have truly, truly airtight vehicles in space, or if it's just something that will always, a debt will always end up paying is just losing some out of space. Well, it might be like if you're trying to purify a metal, right? The, the cost goes up exponentially as you get down to, you know, more and more decimal points of purity. The cost may be lower to just bring nitrogen. Okay, wait, hang on a sec. Dan in the chat says 100% airtight is not even possible. Uh, it's about how many decimals. So, okay, so what if you were to have a hollow a hollow iron sphere? Like, is air still going to get through uh, that? I think it might. I mean, I guess you could have diffusion yeah. through the iron. It would be very slow, but I guess it would happen. You can have kind of an infinite concentration gradient. Yeah, we'll we'll get there once we have um, uh, force field technology. There we go. I guess we'll have to just count <laughs> on that. Other than gravity, which, you know, is a pretty darn good force field. Even so, still has its uh, limitations, right? Just ask Mars. To wrap up, we have two traditional final questions. Um, I have a feeling that the second question you're probably pretty prepared for. <laughs> but the, the penultimate question that we have for you is where would you like to be found on the internet? So I do tweet um, at Caswell Tess. And that's probably my most active social media platform. Um, I also host a blog, which is called Final Frontier Science. In grad school, I didn't keep that up to date as I probably should. So, you know, I don't post there as often, but that is another spot, particularly for women who are interested in science and engineering. I try to profile women who are working in space exploration on the site. So there are some, you know, potentially oh, inspirational awesome. stories there for young women interested in STEM. Those are my two main internet presences. And then the ultimate question is, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be? One object into space. Assuming I have a spacecraft with a functional <laughs> life support right. system. Assuming all that stuff is taken yeah, I care think, of. I think normally we're thinking like going to either ISS or maybe a commercial space station in Leo. That's actually a pretty tough question. I don't think my wife would want to go. Otherwise, you know, I would obviously need to bring yeah, her that for marital harmony. Count. People, people but, are objects. Um, right. Oh, man, this is a tough question. <laughs> is it like lame to just say I would need to bring my Kindle? No, that's... Well, no, I think people have yeah, said that before. Are up there. The astronauts on the station have weekends off essentially and what i found on my hair emission was that if you didn't have a good supply of good books you would end up restless so 
I think that I would have to have a good supply of reading materials. Uh, what What are you reading right now? Anything in particular? Right now, I'm actually working my way through The Expanse. Oh. Yeah, so I'm on I'm okay. on the third one of those. I'm a little late to the party, so I'm doesn't only matter. On the third it's one. still good. Yeah, and then there's a there's a great book about women in the Civil War called Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy that I just am finishing, and that is a fantastic book as well. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. No, thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, we just got two launches, and what is our first one, Ben? Yeah, first up is a Proton with a Brazem upper stage flying Blagovest number 12L. So this is the second of four planned Blagovest communication satellites. So the launch time is April 18th at 2212 hours UTC. Next up is April 20th with the launch of Electron. The name of the mission is It's Business Time. Yay! Okay, so I think of that Flight of the Concords song. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I don't. Uh, well, I'll post a link and you have to listen to it. It's business time. It's a, it's a great song. Anyway, um, so this is Electron's first commercial launch, which will feature two Lemur 2 CubeSats for Spire Global and a single CubeSat for GeoOptics. Um, you can watch that live on YouTube. The launch window, as I said, is April 20th, um, starting at 0, 100 hours and 30 minutes UTC through 0430 UTC. So it's a nice long uh, four-hour launch window there. So let's hope that they launch something during that four-hour span. Alrighty, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. It's time to deal with the show, and we will cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com, and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. If you like this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the Ground Control chat room listening to the show live. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And that is all, so we will see you in one week on orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.